This is a recording of a lecture by Sven Robinson to the BC Humanist Association. It's from a cassette in our archive, so forgive the quality. I also don't have the exact date it was recorded, but I think it was in 1998 or 1999. At the time, Sven was an NDP member of parliament in Burnaby. He was the first MP to come out as gay, and in this lecture, he talks about the fights he had with the religious right throughout his time as an MP. He fought for abortion rights, physician-assisted dying, parliamentary prayers, and against the inclusion of God in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. At times, he had to face the consequences for standing up for secularism. What's interesting to me about this lecture is how, almost 20 years later, we're still fighting many of the same fights. The BC Humanist Association is a nonpartisan organization. To find out more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. Ernest, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And I want to thank the BC Humanist Association for having honored me uh, and having given, having given me the privilege of, um, of joining with you this evening. I have to confess, I'm not a card-carrying member, uh, but certainly I, I feel a kindred spirit. And as I look around this room and I see many people that, uh, that I know and for whom I have enormous respect and admiration, not the least of which is, is an old and dear friend, Claire Colhane, just a remarkable human being. Uh, sometimes I'm asked by children in schools. I love to speak to kids. Uh, I'm asked about how, you know, how can one person make a difference? And I talk about people that have made a difference in our community, in our world, and one of those people is, is Claire Colhane. And Claire, I thank you for your contribution. I'm kind of proud of the fact that I was the first to make, make sure that Claire got official recognition from Her Majesty the Queen when she got a medal from me in Canada's 125th anniversary celebrations, one of the 125, and now, of course, others are going on to acknowledge that. But uh, I, um, I want to thank you for keeping the, the spirit the flame of humanism alive and strong in our communities, in, uh, in Vancouver, in British Columbia, and indeed uh, nationally. I just received a copy of the, uh, of the newsletter that you, uh, that you put out, um, The Humanist Perspective, and I must say I was, I was very moved by, by a couple of things that I saw there. One was, and I want to really commend uh, uh, Ernest, uh, the developments at, uh, at my alma mater, at the University of British Columbia. I think it's, it's wonderful that there is a, a strong and active humanist club, Ernest, and I know that, uh, that you did uh, an enormous amount, you and your wife did an enormous amount to make that possible. And I think all of us should acknowledge and thank Ernest for the work that he has done in promoting humanism at UBC and elsewhere. I was also uh, particularly moved to, to note that uh, at your annual general meeting there will be a Gordon Rogers Memorial Lecture. I was moved because Gordon was a friend, and Goldie continues to be a friend. She's a remarkable human being. I don't know if any of you know Goldie Rogers, uh, but uh, she's an amazing woman and uh, very strong, very opinionated, uh, and uh, just a, a remarkable human being, as was Gordon. Her husband, um, and uh, certainly, um, I remember. I remember Gordon well. He was a decent, uh, a wise, and a courageous man who uh, who lived his humanist values. And uh, I'm delighted to see that uh, that there's a a lecture in his memory. Uh, hopefully, an annual lecture in his memory, because certainly he uh, embodies the principles and the values of humanism, and I think in a very, very deep and, and profound way. Um, the, um, 
The subject that uh, I've been asked to say a, a few words about this evening, uh, the church and state in the 90s, is one that I've had to confront many, many times over the uh, almost 17 years that I've had the privilege of being a, a member of Parliament since I was first elected at the tender age of 12 uh, in uh, something like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, as I was thinking about, about what I might share with you this evening, and let me be clear that I hope that uh, there will be an opportunity, and I mentioned this to Ernest, I hope there'll be an opportunity for some dialogue and uh, some, uh, some conversation among us, some questions and, and some comments. So I want to share a few thoughts, and then uh, I'd be delighted to, to hear from, from you. But as I was kind of thinking to myself, well, what is it that, that I can say about about the church and about the state in the 90s and the interaction between the two. Um, I was thinking that as a result of many of the issues that I've dealt with, that I've confronted, some of the stands that I've taken over the years, that perhaps more than almost any other member of parliament, that I've had to personally confront this issue of, of the relationship between the church and the state between religion and the state in the 90s. I, um, I probably get more mail quoting the Bible than any other member of parliament. I know by heart Romans and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, particularly certain powerful passages in those, uh, those chapters. Um, it's kind of interesting, of course, because the quotes that I receive, and I receive them regularly, condemning me to burn in hellfire forever, the quotes that I receive are strangely selective. You know, there's not often reference to some of the justifications of slavery that Paul so eloquently made, or his statements about the role of women in the church, shut up, be silent, you know, or some of the other admonitions, rather selective reading of the, uh, of the Bible. I, um, I get a lot of, of interesting letters, um, and I thought I'd share just, just one short, vivid example with you. Um, this was sent to me last year. Not sure exactly what provoked it, but it's not uncommon. Most of them are marked, by the way, personal. Whenever I get personal and confidential mail, I know that the chances are pretty good that it's uh, going to be something spiritual. Um, the other amusing thing about this mail, I have to tell you, is, and this is really honest to God, I mean, I, I wish I, I should have brought a couple of my, I didn't think to do it, but the number that I get, the number of letters that I get, from people who, um, who condemn me in the most harsh and vigorous terms for breach of various biblical injunctions and end their letters by saying, by the way, if you're passing through my town, I'd be delighted to get together with you for a cup of coffee, get to know you better. I haven't taken up any of those invitations yet, but it might be interesting. But here's one I don't intend to take up. This was a letter that was sent to me last year. Attention, Sven Robinson, MP, NDP, underlined. I told you some time ago to resign. 
you did not. You are sinning against your God. One, you scorn your God. Two, you say yes to the premeditated murder of innocent babies. Three, you say yes to euthanasia. Four, you say yes to same-sex benefits. It's no wonder Lucy Dos Santos said, souls are falling into hell like a whirlwind. By the way, can anybody tell me who Lucy Dos Santos is? Anybody raise your hand? No? I'm not alone then. Obviously, you, sir, will join others of your ilk and be whirlwinded, underlined, straight into that ocean of fire. Get out of Canada now. P.S. You cannot even call yourself a member of the male species. <laughs> so, you know, um, interesting male, um, and certainly it's not just been it's not just been male over the years. And I mean, I, I could write a book. In fact, I've been approached by many publishers suggesting that I do so. The advances aren't good enough yet. Um, but um, it's not just been male. You know, letters you can deal with. You can deal with, with with words because for every every letter I get like this, I, I get another letter from somebody who, who 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 says it perhaps in some small way that I've been able to make a little difference in their life, and so that that makes all the difference in the world. But occasionally, letters and words can be powerful and they can sting. But what really hurts is when that religious belief is used as a sword against me in my own community. And it's happened too often. A couple of examples. One, I, just after coming out publicly as a gay man in 1988, it's a little bit, some of my more cynical friends said it was a little bit like Jesse Jackson coming out as a black man, but <laughs> I thought that was rather harsh and unkind. Um, but, Shortly after that, it was in the spring of 1988, and um, and it was a tough and, and turbulent time. It was six months before federal election. Most of my colleagues thought I was stark raving mad. And every spring, my office would contact the local secondary schools in my constituency, and there, were, there are half a dozen of them, um, because I give a scholarship. One of the things that I did was when we got a pay raise, I, I, I said I was going to give my, my, my increase to, to scholarships for the students in my constituency, and I did that. Scholarship in memory of one of my political heroes, a guy named Tommy Douglas. And so when my assistant contacted all the high schools in Burnaby in the spring of 1988 after coming out, no problem, but when she contacted one of the schools, St. Thomas More, she... Um, she was told by the principal of St. Thomas More, Brother Short, that the school had met, the leadership of the school had met, and they had decided that uh, they would not allow me to be present at their graduation ceremonies because it would be a bad example for the children in that school. That hurt. That hurt. It hurt when a grade four teacher who had invited me before that time to come and speak about government to her kids phoned and said we don't want him in our school because he's a bad role model. That hurt. I phoned Brother Short and I asked him, I said, you know, what is it? Have I suddenly grown horns? Have I become the personification of evil? I mean, what is it that, 
that, that, that I can't stand on your stage and present a scholarship to a student to assist them in their education. He said, you know, your values are, are in conflict with the values of this school. You have to set a good moral example. I'll never forget those words. Well, Brother Short, it was kind of interesting because Brother Short, about three years later, came across his name again. Brother Short was one of those who had very quietly moved from Newfoundland after having been involved in sexual abuse of children in his school. He was convicted, pled guilty, and he was lecturing me about setting a good moral example for the children of his school. I resisted the temptation to call him. It wasn't easy. I did. Um, and that's happened many times. Uh, you know, a, a church in my community, Wellington Church, one of the largest churches, a Mennonite church, many good folks at that church, had a, a ceremony to celebrate the expansion of their church, a new building. They invited the mayor, invited the provincial representative, invited the school board representatives. For some reason, they didn't invite the federal representatives. And I, of course, phoned Father, well, no, it wasn't Father, it was Pastor, Pastor Kelvin. Asked him, well, was this just an oversight, or what was it? No, we don't want you in our church. We don't want you in our church. And of course, that's their right. That's their, their right. Because he felt that I might set a bad example for the folks in that church. That was about four or five years ago. And that kind of thing hurts. And once again, kind of sad to read just last week that Pastor Willis from Willingdon Church has been charged. Same thing. You know. So there's a lot of hypocrisy out there, isn't there? That we have to deal with and we have to confront. The radical religious right scares the hell out of me. And you know, anybody that thinks that they're, they're only down there in the United States is wrong, is very wrong. Many of the, many of the issues that I've dealt with and continue to deal with are issues that, in which I've, I've had to confront head on that radical religious right. The issue of choice on abortion, for example. The first first bill, the first private member's bill I tabled as a, as a young member of parliament was a bill to repeal section 251 of the criminal code, the section on abortion. And I remember after that, leaflets being circulated to every home in my constituency with a picture of a fetus on the cover saying, hey Sven, Pick on someone your own size. And then you opened up the leaflet, and inside there was a picture of Henry Morgenthaler. Now, I happen to have enormous respect for Henry Morgenthaler, a great humanist, by the way. And inside it, it said, Protect Burnaby's children, born and unborn. Not terribly subtle, was it? That was 1984. 
And then it says, Sven Robinson is Henry Morgenthaler's best friend in Parliament. I took that as a badge of honor, actually. Um, but it was quite interesting because um, despite the fact that those, those leaflets were circulated everywhere, and despite the vigorous politicking by anti-choice people in my community, most of whom were from fundamentalist churches in the community, uh, my majority went up. Euthanasia, another issue. And Ernest mentioned Sue Rodriguez, who was, I think, one of the most courageous, dignified women that I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Someone else who I mentioned when I, when I talked to kids about, about one person making a difference. One person putting an issue on the national political agenda in this country with power, with eloquence. And yet you wouldn't believe the number of letters that Sue got from people who, who call themselves religious. Contemptuous letters, deeply hurtful letters. People phoning her. She had somebody actually come to her home, open the front door to her home in Sydney, come in, get down beside her bed and start praying beside her bed. You know? I mean, it was unbelievable. And I was delighted when she was honored as Humanist of the Year. And I know it meant a great deal to her uh, as well. But what I know she felt very deeply, and certainly what I feel very deeply, is that we have to understand something, that, that while our Constitution protects and must protect freedom of religion and the freedom to, to have no religion, while it does all of that, that we cannot allow those whose personal religious beliefs are opposed to a particular philosophy, or practice, whether it be abortion, or physician-assisted suicide, or euthanasia, to impose those personal religious beliefs on an entire nation through criminal law. And that is precisely what they would seek to do. No one says that, that a person who, who has those beliefs has to either have an abortion, or perform an abortion, or have access to euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. But what they are saying is that they will impose their religious beliefs on everyone else and deny them that choice. And I think that is what is terribly, terribly wrong. Some go further. The Catholic Church, in its declaration on euthanasia, talks about how suffering has a special place in heaven. That there is nobility in suffering. And if those, of, if, if you believe that, that something, there isn't something noble about suffering, then, you know, then you can act on that belief. But to force others to act on that, to suffer after palliative care has been tried and doesn't work, because it's not a choice between palliative care on the one hand and, and euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide on the other. The finest palliative care in the world cannot, cannot end all suffering, all pain, all indignity. Even palliative care doctors themselves will, will acknowledge that. What they say is, well, you can, you can be sedated 
In the words of the House of Lords report in Britain, they said, you can be sedated into a state of pharmaceutical oblivion. Or the Canadian Palliative Care Association, when they said, you can be sedated to the point where there is no meaningful interaction with your family. Well, some people don't want to live that way. Some people don't want to die that way. And yet, they are denied the legal choice and doctors are forced into the shadows, into darkness, making decisions at great personal risk to assist patients in those circumstances. And that is wrong. The, um, the other area in which I think it's important to, to note that too often there's influences is political leadership itself. I'll never forget back in 1980-81 when I sat as a member of the special joint committee on the Constitution of Canada, one of two New Democrats on that committee. And I, I urged the then Minister of Justice to include in Section 15, the Equality Rights Section of the Charter, sexual orientation. I'll never forget him saying that he had consulted with the nuns at Shawinigan. It was Jean Chrétien the Minister of Justice at the time. He had consulted with the nuns in Shawinigan, and he didn't feel they were ready for this, so he wasn't going to move. I, um, I remember as well the intervention of the Tory, a guy named Jake F., who said we can't include every barnacle and eaves trough in the Constitution of Canada. I'm trying to figure out which one I was, a barnacle and eaves trough. I'm sure. Um, and I, I vividly remember, in fact, I vividly remember a heated caucus discussion. And I know you're not supposed to talk about what goes on in caucus, but i got to share this one with you because it was a classic. A heated caucus discussion, and there must be a statute of limitations anyway. Um, a caucus discussion about, I was one of the two members on the committee, and there was a proposal, as you may recall, some of you, to include God and the supremacy of God in the Canadian Constitution. Well, I thought this was wrong, and I said that to my colleagues, and they looked at me absolutely aghast and said, we, you can't vote against God, Sven. I mean, even you is going too far, right? You can't vote against God. And I said, look, you know, in a constitution, in a secular state, there cannot be a reference to the supremacy of any God. That's wrong, and I will vote against these words. Well, the whip of the caucus removed me from the committee. I went along to the committee anyway, and spoke anyway, and wasn't able to vote, but uh, voted in the House subsequently, and spoke out against that, and somehow managed to survive politically. I am... Um, I also raised the issue, and this is another one some of you might have heard about in the context of Parliament, raised the issue of the, uh, the parliamentary prayer. Now, you know, in the scheme of things, it's not an earth-shattering thing, but I think it's just an important symbolic thing to ask why it is that we open the proceedings of Parliament with a Christian prayer each day. And so I raised this issue and got nowhere and got nowhere, and finally we managed to, uh, to make some progress in, a, in one of the committees. And, uh, and we've changed it, so at least they, they rotate through a, a series of prayers. So we're, we're making progress, but it's still not, we're still not all the way there. Um, half the Tory caucus rose up in righteous indignation against that, i.e. Elsie Wayne. Um, she, um, uh, she was 
bitterly, vigorously opposed to this uh, uh, this change in uh, in parliamentary practice. And I have to say that I, I've been in I've been in Parliament now, as I say, for almost 17 years. I've sat with a lot of of MPs, sat through many caucuses, served under I think six prime ministers so far. Um, and there's no doubt that uh, that the influence of the radical religious right is stronger and more powerful in this caucus and in this parliament than in any that I've seen. People think it's just the Reform Party. And God knows they're a scary bunch. But it's not just the Reform Party. There is a strong, a very significant element within the Liberal Caucus. You've all heard of the Roseanne Skokes and the Tom Wapels, but there are many, many others in that Liberal Caucus that share that philosophy. And they are doing whatever they can to impose that, that philosophy uh, in government policy. And it's, uh, it's very scary. And they are having an impact in a whole range of areas. I mentioned earlier the issue of equality for, for gays and lesbians, and certainly they are having an impact in this. It was ten years ago, on the 4th of March, it's coming 4th of March, ten years ago, that a, a, a Minister of Justice first stood up in the House of Commons and said, we're going to amend the Canadian Human Rights Act to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. We're still waiting. Ten years later, not for any kind of special rights. Alan Rock has promised it. God knows Minister of Justice after Minister of Justice has promised it. And yet, still, no action. And that's partly because of this, this group of right-wing, religious, radical religious right-wingers in, in this parliament that are having a, a significant... Uh, impact. Uh, they um, they've spoken out in virulent terms against recognition of um, of gay and lesbian relationships, for example. Talked about how this would be a perversion and a denial of of Christian principles and Christian values. Very clearly stated that. I wish they could have could have heard the words of Dustin Hoffman when he spoke very powerfully about about a transformational moment for him. He talked about visiting a director, a well-known Hollywood director named Hal Ashby, uh, in a cancer ward in, in Hollywood. And Ashby was, was very sick, and, and Dustin Hoffman went to visit him, and, and the cancer ward was sterile and cold and empty. No love, no life. And the doctor said, you know, I want to I take you to another ward. I want to show you something. And he took him to the, the, the AIDS ward in that hospital. And it was full of, of love and compassion and caring and bowls of soup with matzo balls. And, you know, it was just a, an amazing thing. And Dustin Hoffman left deeply moved and he said, you know, these people are heroes. The love, the care, the compassion, the traditional family values that they have demonstrated in the face of this epidemic is incredibly powerful. No one's talking about recognition of special rights or privileges. About basic fundamental equality. And yet, and yet, this is being denied. And what's even worse is that some of these religious right wingers are, are blaming this epidemic and somehow suggesting that, that this is a signal from God to condemn particular communities. How hateful. How enormously hateful and destructive. And they take it even further. Cardinal Carter and other Catholic leaders have refused to allow street workers, working with, with street kids in Toronto and elsewhere, 
to educate those kids about condoms, about safe sex, or to distribute condoms. This is taking human lives. Let's be very clear about it. It is profoundly immoral and unethical. And yet it continues to happen. Hate literature, the same kind of thing. We see hate crimes legislation, Bill C-41 recently. The religious right leading the opposition to that legislation. Talking about special rights or privileges. Well, let me tell you, it's no great special right or privilege to be singled out because you're a person of color, because you're Jewish, because you're gay or lesbian, or because you're perceived to be gay or lesbian. I don't know if any of you read Mark Schneider's very eloquent piece in the Globe and Mail just this week about how he almost experienced a gay bashing because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know? And the most hateful argument of all that is used by the radical religious right in this context is the equation of homosexuality with pedophilia. And I see it time and time and time again. Flying in the face of all the evidence, <coughs> one of the most respected medical journals, Pediatrics, did a study of sexually abused children. 269 kids that were sexually abused. You know how many of them were sexually abused by homosexuals? Out of 269, two. Over 80% of that abuse took place within the traditional family structure the hands of a, of a family member. And yet they use children. Let's be very clear. The way that the radical religious right uses children against gays and lesbians is exactly the same way that children have been used against other groups historically. Because children are so precious and so valuable and so powerful. Gypsies would abduct our children. Jews would convert our children. And yes, gays would seduce our children. It's no coincidence that all three perished together in the Holocaust. Children. Children being used as weapons. It's evil. It's evil. And yet it's happening all too frequently. It's also interesting to note the, the radical religious right and the way in which they, they intervene in, um, in discussions around the traditional family. One of the, um, even when it's very destructive, one of the other controversial issues that I've taken on, and I know that there will not be unanimity in this room on this one, but is to propose an amendment to the criminal code to repeal section 43 of the criminal code that allows the use of, uh, of violence against children. You know, when you think about it, it's interesting, isn't it? We don't allow adults to, to conduct their relations by, by using violence against one another, and yet we say it's okay to use violence against children. Well, I've got a private member's bill that would repeal that section, and there are a number of countries which have done so. Interesting, they found a dramatic decrease in in a number of uh, very serious social indicators after having having done so. But the radical religious right is screaming about this as an intervention into the, the rights of parents to, 
to discipline their children firmly. Lots of, um, lots of folks think of Canada as, um, as having total separation of church and state. If I were to ask most people in this room, I think most of you would probably say, yeah, you know, basically we've got separation of, of church and state. And yet, it really isn't so. It's only next month, for example, that a constitutional amendment is going to be coming before the House of Commons to get rid of the denominational school system in Newfoundland Labrador. The entire school system in Labrador and Newfoundland is run by churches. There are no independent schools today. It's run by Protestants, run by Catholics, run by various other religious groups. Every single school. And only now, it's all publicly funded, and only now is the Constitution being amended to change that after a hard-fought referendum. It's interesting that there are still publicly funded Catholic school boards in Quebec, in Ontario, perhaps elsewhere. Saskatchewan as well. It's also, I think, sadly, still the case that public money is funding private schools. And I know this is one that is perhaps a little controversial, and I've had some differences with some of my own colleagues on this. In fact, back in 1973-74, I, I chaired a committee of the New Democratic Party. I was president of the Young New Democrats, chaired a committee on, uh, on, um, on public funds for, for private schools. And we strongly recommended that there should be no public money going to private schools. And to her credit, Eileen Daly, the Minister of Education of the day, not only abolished the strap of the schools, but accepted that recommendation uh, as well. And yet, we continue to publicly fund religious and elite schools. We continue to publicly fund Vancouver College, for example, a high school in Vancouver that fired a much-loved teacher and head football coach. What was his crime? Was he a terrible teacher? Was he a lousy football coach? No. He was a superb teacher. He was one of the best football coaches in British Columbia. His crime was that he was divorced and remarried. He was fired from his job. And that school gets money through our tax system. King's College in Edmonton, Alberta. Same thing. A very gifted lab technician and teacher at that school, Delwyn Vrend, fired. Why was he fired? Not because he was a, a bad teacher. Quite the opposite. His students loved him. He was fired because he was gay. Others fired because they're involved in common law relationships. These schools are funded by our taxes. Are funded by our taxes. Federal grants for jobs. One of the few privileges that members of parliament have as individual MPs is to vet grants for, for jobs in their constituencies. There's something called the, the summer challenge programs. And these are various organizations that apply for grants. Federal taxpayers' money to create new jobs. Well, I, um, every year, get applications, as do most members of Parliament, from various religious groups for grants, public money. And I have said 
No. Athletes in action. If athletes in action, which is an evangelical group of athletes, wants to, to, to conduct their activities, they can conduct their activities, but without being publicly funded. It's the same thing with other groups. There are pastoral interns who are seeking public funds. And in most constituencies, let me tell you, they're getting public funds. Your money. Funding. Pastoral interns. I, um, I fought one grant all the way to Ottawa. Took it to the minister's office and ultimately was successful. I said, I will not see one penny of taxpayers' dollars in my constituency going to fund religious organizations for religious purposes. Now, it's different if it's a group, for example, if it's a church that's, that's, that's sponsoring a, a child care. It's fine. No problem. Except, occasionally, they try to step over the line. I slipped into one of the churches that was supposedly doing a, a summer youth camp after one of the parents had told me about some of the activities that were going on and asked them to show me some of the uh, activities, some of the films that they were showing the students, the kids at the summer youth camp. And I mean, it was unbelievable. Religious films. And that was being publicly funded. Well, it wasn't publicly funded anymore. But that still uh, is happening. I think at the international level, we have to ask ourselves some questions as well. Why is it that the Vatican has representation at the United Nations? Can anybody explain that to me? I didn't know that the Vatican was a state. It seems to me that the Vatican's pretty powerful, but it's not a state, and yet they have representation. And they don't just have representation, they use it powerfully. They used it in Cairo at the Conference on Population. They used it in Beijing. They use it at every conceivable opportunity. They have ambassadors. We have ambassadors to them. Publicly funded. Our taxes. What happened to separation of church and state in those circumstances? Internationally, we still see churches trying to dictate to people how to vote. Poland, just recently, the Catholic Church waded right in. Every pulpit, the day before the vote, a strong and powerful message about how to vote. Not that long ago, it happened here in Canada, especially in Quebec. I even had it happen in my own constituency once. Fortunately, they ignored it. But still happening. And the rise of extreme religious parties, the largest party now in Turkey, is a radical, extremist, fundamentalist party, the Welfare, Rafa Party. And I was in Turkey, I led a human rights delegation earlier this year, or in the spring of last year, to, uh, to Turkey. And this party tried to shut down a shelter for battered women. They didn't believe in that kind of thing. It's interfering with, guess what, the family. Okay. So we've got to be very vigilant internationally as well. I think we've also got to understand that in our concern to separate the church and state, that it's also important that we respect and vigorously defend religious freedom. And when it comes under attack, and the freedom to have no religion at all, and when any of those come under attack, that we have to be vigilant. For too many years, Aboriginal religions and spirituality were ruthlessly suppressed in this country. In some cases, it was illegal. 
And it's only now, slowly, starting to recognize that. Ironically, probably more in, in prisons, Claire, than, than anywhere else. Uh, we've got Aboriginal elders that are able to, 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 to play a role. Sweat lodges. During my brief term of research into the BC prison system, um, I, um, I had the privilege of, of participating in, in one of those sweat lodges. And it was a very deeply moving and, and powerful and spiritual experience. And until very recently, that kind of thing was, was suppressed and totally suppressed. So there are many challenges ahead of us in looking at the relationship between church and state and the growing power of the radical religious right. I want to close by by saying that last night, I, this was driven home to me particularly forcefully, because last night I, I was at the Playhouse for the opening of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. And I might say I strongly recommend it to all of you. It's a superb play and very powerfully acted, very fine acting. And you know, I remember during the intermission, a couple of women talking and saying, God, thank God that kind of stuff is, isn't happening anymore, you know. And I, I felt like saying, wake up, you know. Maybe we're not burning witches. Maybe we're not hanging 19 innocent people as they were hanged in Salem. But the risk is still there. All too great, the risk that that kind of intolerance, that kind of zealotry, kind of bigotry and hatred can lead to disastrous consequences in our communities. Remember that Arthur Miller wasn't just writing a historical play, he was writing in the context of the McCarthy era as well. And when I see the rise of intolerance and hatred in the United States, I was watching the debate between the Republican candidates for the nomination. It's scary. Scary when you listen to that. So I, I guess what I would say is, let us be vigilant. Let us be vigilant. And let us be thankful for the work of, of individuals and groups like the BC Humanist Association. For those of you that aren't yet members, I hope that you will consider joining. I think I'm going to take the plunge, Ernest. <laughs> uh, no great sacrifice. But I do, in closing, want to, uh, to thank all of you for the work that each of you is doing in your own lives, I hope, uh, to, uh, to ensure that that, that that separation is maintained, but at the same time to ensure that those basic humanist values continue to make this country and this planet a more decent and a more compassionate place. Thank you very much.